0: It was a Tuesday, April the 11th, 1865, only two days after Robert E. Lee had surrendered his Army of Northern Virginia. Down in North Carolina, with Major General William T. Sherman's relentless blue wave only some 30 miles to the southeast of Raleigh, North Carolina, Confederate General Joseph E. Johnston's men of the Army of Tennessee began to march in and through the old north state's capital. Women lining both sides of Raleigh's Fayetteville Street greeted them. They handed out meat, bread, and tobacco. On the western edge of town, a favorite place for soldiers to linger as they poured westward, at St. Mary's, a school for women, where dozens of young ladies doled out food, water, and encouragement. Before them, Johnston's ragtag force acted soldierly, but one of the young ladies, unable to mask the reality of what she was witnessing, gasped, My God, is this the funeral procession of the Southern Confederacy? Indeed it was, for Johnston and Sherman's men were on the final stretch of road that would lead to a rustic dwelling near Durham station, the Bennett Place. There, in the North Carolina Piedmont, the humblest of stages for the surrender of the last major Confederate Army, and numerically speaking, the largest surrender of the great and terrible American Civil War. Here, the story of those last days The last five letters of history spell story, and that's exactly how history should be taught numbers and dates have no soul. Such presentations fall flat, for history is alive and relevant. Welcome to Threads from the National Tapestry, stories from the American Civil War. This series will feature events and people from that period and will strive to make you feel as if you were there to show that history is indeed a story. On the same day that Joe Johnston's Confederates marched into Raleigh, William Sherman's men occupied Smithfield, North Carolina. Only some 30 miles separated pursued and pursuer. Fully aware of the juggernaut that was Sherman's force, the Confederate general informed North Carolina Governor Zebulon B. Vance that the state capital should be evacuated. And so, what was left of state property was collected monies, state securities, and departmental records. Thousands of blankets, overcoats, uniforms, shoes, and boots, tons of provisions and stockpiles of arms and ammunition, as well as medical supplies, were sent west to Graham, Greensboro, and Salisbury, North Carolina. The next day, April the 12th, four years to the day that Confederates opened fire on Fort Sumter, Johnston's Army of Tennessee continued their westward march through Raleigh. With harsh reality settling in, on this day, there were no crowds. Windows, homes, and stores were closed. Down to the southeast and from the steps of the Johnston County Courthouse in Smithfield, Sherman announced that Robert E. Lee had surrendered to Grant at Appomattox. In Raleigh, Governor Vance left the Capitol around midnight However, before doing so, he sought out two former North Carolina governors and asked if they might venture forward and negotiate with Sherman. After much logistical trouble and humiliation from men in blue, former North Carolina governors William A. Graham and David L. Swain, the current president of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, Both, dressed in antebellum long-tailed coats and beaver hats, met with Sherman late Wednesday, April the 12th. Sherman, aware of Swain's position, said they could talk as one university president to another. Indeed, just before the war, Sherman was named president of the Louisiana Seminary of Learning and Military Academy, today's LSU. The appeal must have struck a harmonious chord, for the two found the Union commander most amicable. Not only did he feed and entertain the two with a concert, he signed an order that protected the governor and state property on the condition there would be no resistance entering the state capital. Greatly relieved, Swain and Graham returned to Raleigh on the 13th which dawned with cold, gray clouds and light rain. When the two got back, they found a ghost town. But to their horror, a few of Joseph Wheeler's Confederate cavalrymen were looting local shops and state property. To Swain's warning, one straggler shouted back, Damn Sherman in the town, too! Finally, as the last of them moved out of town, Mayor William Harrison and eight civic commissioners met Union troops a little over a mile east-southeast of town, and Raleigh was formally surrendered. Around 8 p.m. that Thursday, Sherman himself rode in. It was his fourth state capital he had ridden into. He made his headquarters in the vacated governor's mansion, and as he did so, His force of some 90,000 fanned out in and all around the city. Like Savannah, back in December of 1864, there was demonstrated a tremendous amount of restraint. As Raleigh was occupied, what was now left of the Confederacy in North Carolina was centered around Greensboro, some 77 miles to the west. At the beginning of March, the town numbered around 2,000 people. But with Confederate collapse, refugees swelled that number to some 100,000. All dreaded the anticipated approach of Sherman's army. To add to their anxiety, Union Major General George Stoneman's Federal cavalry was expected to close the Federal trap from the west. Destroying supplies, bridges, and rail, one of Stoneman's divided commands entered Salem back on April the 10th. There, some 30 miles west of Greensboro, they burned 7,000 bales of cotton. The next day, in 10 miles north of Greensboro, another mounted detachment burned the Piedmont Railroad's bridge over Reedy Creek. The train, carrying a fleeing Jefferson Davis and his cabinet, had crossed that very bridge barely an hour earlier. Men in blue were not the only ones digging at the entrails of the Confederacy. Within Greensboro, hungry men in butternut and gray raided stockpiled supplies. One restless group, led by a big Kentuckian, descended on a commissary depot worth $2 million. The force to protect it, the 45th North Carolina fired on them. The Confederate government-in-exile arrived in Greensboro around noon on Tuesday, April the 11th, two days before Sherman entered Raleigh. Davis first stayed in a house on South Elm Street, but left when the landlord made it clear he feared federal reprisal. So, most of his official party stayed in railroad cars on track siding that still exist in downtown Greensboro. Joe Johnston arrived the next day, the 12th, and there he and General P.G.T. Beauregard, who was with President Davis's party, compared military notes. Both agreed the Confederacy had no cards left to play. Three cabinet members and the two generals met with Davis that Wednesday in a 12-by-16-foot room in the house on South Elm. There, a desperate Davis outlined a desperate scheme. He wanted an army of deserters and draft dodgers to march to Alabama, where they would join forces with combined elements of two small Confederate armies. When he finished, Johnston and Beauregard polled the group as to the merit of the President's plan. Only Secretary of State Judah Benjamin was in favor. About them, Captain Bob Lee arrived, and when asked his opinion of the plan, the son of Robert E. Lee agreed with the President. He, too, favored continuing the war. President Davis smiled, and then an event that reinforced the majority's rejection. Opening a note just handed him, Davis was informed that Captain Lee's father, had surrendered the Army of Northern Virginia, and only that army, back on the 9th. The president's smile went away. The next day, Thursday, April the 13th, the day Raleigh was occupied, Davis held a council of war. Convened, the president asked his generals, Beauregard and Johnston, to give their professional opinions. There was a long pause. Then Johnston took the floor. In short, choppy, staccato sentences, he began, My views are, sir, that our people are tired of the war, feel themselves whipped, and will not fight. Our country is overrun, its military resources greatly diminished, while the enemy's military power and resources were never greater and may be increased to any extent desired. We cannot place another large army in the field. And cut off as we are from foreign intercourse, I do not see how we could maintain it in fighting condition if we had it. My men are deserting daily in large numbers and are stealing my artillery horses to add to their escape to their homes. Since Lee's defeat, they regard the war as at an end. If I march out of North Carolina, her people will leave my ranks and it will be the same as I proceed through South Carolina and Georgia. I shall expect to retain no man beyond the by-road or cow path that leads to his home. My small force is melting away like snow before the sun. When he finished, the room was filled with a roaring silence. Davis took the verbal barrage without emotion. He listened to the entire monologue with his head down, gaze absently fixed, while he folded and unfolded a piece of paper. Then, when asked, Beauregard agreed. There was another long silence. Davis then asked, What do you propose? And the reply? Open talks. Davis first balked, then gave in. On Saturday, April the 15th, a dejected president prepared to leave by wagon over unpaved roads west-southwest for Salisbury, North Carolina. That was the gloomy scene in Greensboro. Back to the east, over the span of time we've just described, there had been heavy rain when Sherman's last recorded skirmishes took place. On Thursday, April the 13th, and Friday the 14th at Morrisville, which was 14 miles west of Raleigh, and on Saturday the 15th at rain-swollen New Hope Creek, some 20 miles west of the state capital, and about eight miles east of Chapel Hill. That encounter was between Joe Wheeler's Confederate rear guard and a Union-mounted element under Brevet Brigadier General Smith D. Atkins. After the skirmish, Wheeler's men fell back to a line of rifle pits just east of the village of Chapel Hill, which was home to the University of North Carolina. Within Wheeler's encampment, rumors of Lee's surrender created a great buzz. University President Swain turned those rumors into fact on the 15th. Chapel Hillian Cornelia Phillips Spencer remembered the reaction amongst Confederate troops. She recorded that she watched one Tennessean bury his face in his hands and weep like a child. A Kentuckian swore he'd take his allegiance elsewhere, and a 19-year-old Georgian said the enemy wouldn't get him alive. That day, the news of Lee's surrender was visibly reinforced when some of his veterans, started to pass through Hillsboro, which was some 10 miles north of Chapel Hill, on their way home. On Easter Sunday, April the 16th, Wheeler received orders to pull out and did so that very afternoon. And so it would be around sunset via the Raleigh Road. Federal horsemen appeared and thus began the union occupation of Chapel Hill. Significant, for it was the last town taken by Sherman's army in the American Civil War. University President Swain met and informed them that Sherman promised to spare the town and university, and Smith Atkins said his orders were just that. Still, some scouted the town. They found no Confederates, but they did find a few Confederate flags fluttering over several university buildings, and those were taken down. Simultaneously, guards were assigned to protect private property. Meanwhile, Johnston's army continued to plod west over the Hall River in neighboring Alamance County, at Ruffin's Mill, through Graham, and Company Shops, which today is Burlington, all headed for Greensboro. As that drama unfolded, couriers raced back and forth between Generals Sherman and Johnston. The topic? A cease fire, and talk. Sherman communicated he would hold his infantry at Morrisville and cavalry at Chapel Hill and would be open to a meeting on Monday the 17th at a point equidistant between Hillsboro and a stop on the North Carolina Railroad, Durham's Station at 8 a.m. as Sherman prepared to take the North Carolina Railroad from Raleigh to Durham Station. The telegraph operator raced out to notify his commanding general that he was receiving an important telegraphic message from down east at Moorhead City, North Carolina. Sherman held his train for an hour while the coded message was deciphered. When completed and the note handed to him, he began to read. It was from Secretary of War Edwin Stanton, and the first line A bombshell. President Lincoln was murdered about 10 o'clock last night. Sherman collared the operator, swore him to secrecy until he returned. With that horrific news and Raleigh in danger of fiery reprisal, the train pulled out and at 11 that morning arrived at Durham station where they located Brevet Major General Judson Kilpatrick's cavalry headquarters. Twenty minutes later, and with an escort of some 200 troopers, they headed west on the Hillsboro Road. At 10 a.m. that day, Johnston and his entourage, numbering 60, made their way east from Wade Hampton's headquarters in Hillsboro. After some eight miles, they passed the James Bennett Farm on the left of the Hillsboro Road. At noon, under white flags, the two mounted generals and their accompanying escorts met. Johnston, 58, wore a crisp gray dress uniform buttoned to the neck, his mustache and goatee neatly trimmed. Sherman, 45, wore a rumpled blue coat that was unbuttoned and revealed a vest of the same color, his auburn hair tousled, and his face filled with salt and pepper stubble. They saluted and shook hands. It was their first meeting. Sherman said he wanted to talk in private. With that, Johnston remembered passing the Bennett homestead, so the two rode back, dismounted, walked to the door, and knocked. James and Nancy Bennett opened and agreed to allow the two to meet in the living quarters of their home. The non-slaveholding Bennetts, yeoman farmers, and their children moved to a separate structure, the kitchen. Back inside the living quarters, Sherman recalled finding a large downstairs room, an attic above, two beds, some chairs, and a drop-leaf table. He remembered the wooden floor scrubbed to a milky whiteness. Once inside, Sherman called for his saddlebags, which held maps, documents, paper, pen, and ink. After all was delivered by an orderly, The aide left, and the two were alone. It was then Sherman showed Johnston the telegram he had received just before he left Raleigh. Immediately, perspiration popped out all along the Confederate generals' ford. Clearly distressed, Johnston believed the event was the greatest possible calamity for the South. With that dire foundation, Sherman began to dictate terms. He wanted to spare the South any further devastation, and so his terms would be similar to those Grant gave Lee at Appomattox. It was then that Johnston reminded Sherman of an April 13th communication that negotiation might include not only military, but civilian matters. Sherman balked, but Johnston pointed out that unlike Lee, his army of Tennessee was not surrounded and indeed was a four-day march away. Then Johnston played his trump card. He proposed, why not we make one job of it? Why not negotiate the surrender of all Confederate armies? Sherman questioned this, but Johnston said he would get Jefferson Davis's permission. Southern state reentry also came up, and Johnston asked if President Davis and his cabinet were not included in a general amnesty. With so many issues, military and civilian, on the table, the meeting ended at 2.30 and both decided to meet again the next day, Tuesday the 18th. First meeting concluded. Sherman wanted to get back to Raleigh before news about Lincoln's assassination leaked and real trouble began. Indeed, as he arrived via train back at the state capitol, an angry mob greeted him. Major Charles Wills of the 103rd Illinois summed up what many felt when news of Lincoln's assassination had indeed leaked to a few during the day. Wills said, The army is crazy for vengeance. We hope Johnston will not surrender. God pity this country if he retreats or fights us. Fully aware that his army, filled with Westerners who loved Lincoln, Sherman acted. As soon as he reached his headquarters, he issued orders which announced with great pain and sorrow the death of their president. In the same communication, he strengthened guards patrolling Raleigh, posted pickets on all roads, and ordered all unauthorized soldiers found in town arrested and jailed. There was another whose presence helped to save Raleigh, and that was Major General John A. Logan of Illinois. When he learned the news earlier in the day, he rode into town and, sure enough, found several thousand men from his own 15th Corps advancing on the state capital. At the outskirts of town, Logan positioned himself directly in their path and tried to reason with them, but they pushed through. It was then he pointed to a Union artillery battery and warned he would order it to fire if they did not stop. And that did it. For Raleighites, it was an anxious night. Most stayed indoors, remained awake, and had at the ready basins and buckets of water. With vengeance in the air, Johnston's potential surrender now took on a far greater urgency. The next day, the 18th, when the two met again, Johnston brought along Confederate Secretary of War John C. Breckinridge for legal advice. Meeting again at the Bennett Place at noon, Sherman and Johnston again shook hands and entered the living quarters. For the task at hand, Johnston said he had authority to surrender all remaining Confederate troops, but wanted assurances their constitutional rights would be protected. Sherman said that Lincoln's 1863 Amnesty Act did just that, and that the Appomattox terms did embrace general officers. Johnston pushed the issue and wanted Breckinridge to join them. As they met, a packet of papers arrived. Included was a peace document written by Confederate Postmaster General John Reagan, who was with the fleeing Davis. Sherman read the document, but thought it too wordy. It was at this time Sherman called for his saddlebags and broke out whiskey and shot glasses, much to the delight of the Kentuckian Breckinridge. Indeed, the former United States vice president poured himself a shot, and perhaps that inspired him to defend Reagan's document and lecture Sherman on international law as precedent with regard to rebellion. After some eight minutes, Sherman cut him off. See here, gentlemen, who was doing the surrendering anyway? this goes on, you'll have me sending an apology to Jeff Davis. Sherman, back in control, sat down to compose. One story goes that he absent-mindedly got up to get another belt of whiskey, and this time he did not think to offer a shot to anyone else. Breckenridge, who had emptied his mouth of a chew of tobacco in anticipation of just another shot, sulked the rest of the meeting. Later, he offered this glimpse of Sherman. Oh, he's bright enough and a man of force, but Sherman is a hog. Yes, sir, a hog. Did you see him taking that drink by himself? No Kentucky gentleman would have taken away that bottle. He knew we needed it and needed it badly. When Sherman finished his memorandum or basis of agreement, he announced Gentlemen, this is the best I can do. Indeed, when Johnston and Breckenridge read it, it was better than they had any right to expect. Though he thought Reagan's document too wordy, Sherman's copy was twice its length and essentially included almost all its terms. Not only would all Confederate forces be disbanded and disarmed, but incumbent Southern state governments would be retained after taking oaths prescribed by the Constitution. Southern personal, political, and property rights would be preserved and protected. The Southern people would receive universal amnesty, and there would be a general suspension of hostilities. The terms went on. Confederate arms would be deposited in state arsenals, and the president would recognize various southern state governments provided their officers and legislators took an oath. No question, these terms addressed more than just military matters. The Ohioan himself realized he had ventured into political waters, but he wanted to end the war, as he put it, by one single stroke of the pen. He believed his terms complied with Lincoln's wish to let him up easy. Quite honestly, his terms were liberal because he dreaded the possibility of pursuing and fighting Johnston's army and because of his great mistrust and disdain for politicians. Two copies were made, and around 4 p.m. the meeting broke up. Though William Sherman didn't realize it at the time, his treaty that day set him up for more shots, not alcoholic, but political, for his treaty went far beyond what Grant had offered Lee. On Friday night, April 21st, new President Andrew Johnson and his cabinet reviewed the terms and they collectively, as well as most in Washington City, went ballistic. Ballistic. Denouncing Sherman, Stanton, and Johnson were particularly beside themselves. They ranted Sherman had no authority to enter in such an agreement. In their minds, his terms practically acknowledged Confederate governments. They believed that in effect he reestablished Confederate state governments. Further, he placed immense quantity of arms and ammunition in state arsenals, And in guaranteeing property rights, he essentially enabled Southerners to reestablish slavery. He rendered the United States government liable for the Confederate debt. He placed in jeopardy loyal Southern Union governments and the entire basis for the existence of the state of West Virginia. He abolished confiscation laws. He bastardized what Lincoln wanted, and the terms formed no basis for a true and lasting peace. Stanton went as so far as to send his nine objections and harsh personal criticism of Sherman to the New York Times, and all that appeared Sunday, April the 23rd. To remedy the debacle as they saw it, Grant was ordered to Raleigh to not only inform Sherman that his terms were unacceptable, but was ordered to direct operations, in other words, Relieve Sherman. Grant arrived in Raleigh around 6 p.m. on Monday, the 24th. His appearance at the governor's palace both surprised and pleased his old friend, but quite honestly, Sherman was not pleased that his terms had been rejected. God only knows what might have happened if he had known of Stanton's damning remarks to the press. With Grant's discreet guidance, Sherman sent Joe Johnston two dispatches one that ended a ceasefire in 48 hours, and a second to make it clear that he could only extend terms that were exactly what Grant had given Lee at Appomattox. Ironically, at 5 p.m. that Monday, Johnston received Jefferson Davis's approval of Sherman's original terms extended back on the 18th. In fact, the Confederate president and cabinet, what was left of it now in Charlotte, voted unanimously to accept those terms. Now, barely an hour later, harsh, bitter reality. The truce was to end, and the earlier terms had been flatly and demonstratively rejected. Davis learned of the turnaround the next day, Tuesday the 25th, angry angry. He sent word to Johnston to disband his army, but not surrender it. In other words, Davis wanted to fight a guerrilla war. Grant, Sherman, and Johnston wanted to avoid just that. And so, a third meeting was scheduled for Wednesday, the 26th, the same day that at noon, the ceasefire between the two contesting armies was to end. With Sherman and Johnston forced into a third meeting, perhaps this is a good time to recount what was going on eight miles from the Bennett Place in Chapel Hill, where occupation had been quite tolerable. But like the Sherman-Johnston negotiations, there were some unexpected turns and twists. When the town was formally occupied at 8 a.m. on Monday morning the 17th, Brevet Brigadier General Smith Atkins posted the Ninth Michigan to safeguard property. They established order and did so in a fashion that won admiration from the townspeople. In fact, when news of Lincoln's assassination finally reached town on the 18th, we have no record of reprisal. But indeed, that night was unsettling. Though many in town hid food stores, and valuables. More often than not, their efforts were defeated. Engineering and mathematics professor Charles Phillips and his father hid their pocket watches in the university telescope, but a stargazing Union soldier found them in the lens. Incredibly, they were returned. Judge William H. Battle hid his family's silver service under a maple tree, and then forgot which one. It was discovered years later. One of Chapel Hill's merchants, Charles Mallette's neighbors, complained that one federal pitched his tent where her bacon had been hidden and therefore she couldn't get to it without revealing her hiding place. All in all, Chapel Hill was well guarded and sustained minimal damage. That being said, horses were stored in several on-campus buildings, including Smith Hall, the library, which prompted the comment that Sherman's horses were the best educated in the United States Army. Though the town and campus were treated fairly, war and defeat did mean that the university struggled. One of the very few southern universities to remain open throughout the conflict, 321 of the university's alumni died in the war, and 1,062 had served. Now, to qualify those figures, they may not include all those who left the university to serve before their graduation. In late April of 1865, with the term nearing its end, only a dozen students attended classes, 364 fewer than the student body of 1860-61. The only student to graduate in the class of 1865 was William C. Prout. It is believed that UNC was the only institution of rank for males or females in the southern states, which even held commencement exercises in the terrible year of 1865, and one of only two schools, as I referred earlier, in the South to remain open throughout the war, The other, Davidson College. Now, though UNC and Chapel Hill were treated quite civilly, the outlying areas fared much worse, especially south and west of town. Away from town and campus, foragers stripped outlying farms. Some were Confederates, veterans of Lee's Army as they made their way home. For women in town, the first days of occupation conjured up fear of their enemies, then followed open disdain. For example, Miss Eleanor Swain, the university president's daughter, expressed her Southern sentiment when she performed for Union Ears, "Maryland, My Maryland," the tune, Old Tannenbaum. Her adapted lyrics went, Atkins boys are marching through... Hide your mules, oh, hide your mules. And then, if Charles Millett didn't have enough to worry about, some of those very same ladies moved from fear and disdain to downright fraternization with the enemy. As he put it, and his sentiment was shared by many, I feel conquered, but not subdued. Might has overcome right. And my thoughts and feelings are the same and will go down with me to the grave. With enough townspeople sharing this sentiment, Michigan cavalryman William Stevens called Chapel Hill one of the rankest rebel towns he had seen. Yet, curiously, he also found its people very pleasant and the town beautiful. He even thought the village, to quote him, was more like a home than any place I have been in the South. He went on to say that he thought the university buildings finer than those back in Ann Arbor and confessed, I don't know, but I could lose my heart if we were to remain here long enough, though it is a pretty hard thing for an old bachelor like myself to lose. Well, another bachelor in town found it wasn't quite that hard. It was 28-year-old brevet brigadier general Smith D. Atkins and it happened April the 19th when he dropped by President Swain's home for a social call. During the visit Swain wanted to show the union general Lord Charles Cornwallis's letter book and entering an adjoining room asked his daughter Eleanor to retrieve the volume. She glided in with it and with her head thrown back in contempt that is, until her eyes met Atkins. The mutual attraction was instant. In short order, Atkins was back as much as duty allowed. Their courtship caused Swain and his wife, as he put it, as much uneasiness and apprehension as anything short of death in the family could have done. Swain checked up on Atkins found that he was a well-mannered newspaper editor and capable lawyer who had a successful practice in Freeport, Illinois. Still, their budding romance was unbelievable scandal. Town curmudgeon Charles Millet was disgusted, and for him and others it grew worse when she accepted a riding horse that everyone thought had to have been stolen. The ill will was not only from the Southern perspective, Atkins' old unit, the 92nd Illinois Mounted, struggled with the romance. One evening, the unit's band called on Atkins at his headquarters, and finding he was not there, found him, of course, at Swain's home. The band serenaded the general and his lady and called for a speech. He stepped out on the porch and began, "'Soldiers, I am making a speech to a young lady here tonight, and I have no eloquence to waste.' she requires it all. He then ordered them back to their camp. When Atkins left town May the 3rd, Miss Ellie announced her engagement to him. Her parents protested, but she reminded them she was over 21 and free to make her own decisions. On August the 23rd of that year, they were married in Chapel Hill, despite the fact that invitations were spat upon. Irate students rang the bell atop one of the university's buildings throughout the ceremony and for a total of three hours and afterwards hanged President Swain and General Atkins in effigy. One matter consummated. Back in late April, two commanding generals returned to Bennett's house once more to try to do the same. Johnson arrived at 2 p.m. on Wednesday the 26th. That same morning up in Virginia. John Wilkes Booth was cornered and mortally wounded. Meeting Sherman, the two again shook hands and entered yet again the Bennett place. This time Sherman, following orders, offered the Appomattox terms, but Johnston balked. He felt them inadequate. He wanted additional guarantees. And with talk going nowhere, Union Major General John Schofield was summoned to try and resolve the impasse. And indeed, he found a way. He drafted a surrender document that was identical to Appomattox, and then a second document encompassing supplementary terms. It was done, and incredibly, Washington City raised no objections. Johnson accepted the terms even though he knew he was disobeying a direct order from his president who wanted guerrilla war. Simply put, Joe Johnson just wanted it over. There, inside that rustic home, almost 90,000 men from North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida were surrendered. Of five Confederate surrenders, at Appomattox on April the 9th, at the Bennett Place on the 26th, Citronelle, Alabama, on May the fourth, in New Orleans on May twenty-sixth, and in Indian Territory, June twenty-third. Bennett Place was by far the largest of the American Civil War. At the conclusion of their meeting, the two generals invited their lieutenants and their host, James Bennett, to join them in a toast. At about five p.m., the two departed. Sherman back to Raleigh and Johnston back to Hillsboro. When they left, just like Wilmer McLean's front parlor and house at Appomattox, souvenir hunters descended on Bennett's place. He refused to sell his table cover and drop leaf table, but as one put it, helplessly watched as his house was carried off in piecemeal. Two days later, on the 28th, a union detail arrived to fetch the drop-leaf table and its cover. Bennett was offered $10 and a first-rate horse. Bennett balked, then was told if he didn't sell it, they were ordered to seize it. Bennett agreed. The next day, he walked to Durham Station to get his money and horse, but received neither. For damages done, he later twice wrote North Carolina Governor William Holden, but never got a reply. In 1873, he petitioned the Southern Claims Commission, but his claim was denied because a son of his had entered Confederate service. After the proceedings on April 26th, Joe Johnston boarded a waiting train in Hillsboro and headed the some 42 miles west to Greensboro, where his army what was left of it would be informed of their surrender. His force was scattered for some 130 miles from Hillsboro to Charlotte, although the main body was in and around Greensboro. The next day, the 27th, most were aware that their war was over. Their reaction? The emotional spectrum from anger to tears of relief. There was a small consolation when they drew their last pay. The first they had seen in months. The average? $1.17. Unlike Appomattox, there was no stacking of arms before federal troops. It was just over. Jefferson Davis never forgave Johnston for surrendering. Back in Greensboro, under Johnston's direction, the Confederate Army of Tennessee turned in its arms and war materiel. The men were paroled in and around Greensboro, and as far to the southwest as High Point. On Tuesday, May the 2nd, Joseph E. Johnston issued General Order No. 22, a farewell to, as he penned, his matchless troops. With his men scattered all over the North Carolina Piedmont and further south, he couldn't hope to address them as a body. So instead, His general order was copied, distributed, posted, or read aloud. He did, however, hold one final council of war. To a few beneath the stately oaks of the Gorrell House, near the railroad siding in Greensboro, he said, Comrades, in terminating our official relations, I earnestly exhort you to observe faithfully the terms of pacifications agreed upon and to discharge the obligations of good and peaceful citizens, as well as you have performed the duties of thorough soldiers in the field. By such a course, you will best secure the comfort of your families and kindred, and restore tranquility to our country. You will return to your homes with the admiration of our people, won by the courage and noble devotion you have displayed in this long war. I shall always remember with pride the loyal support and generous confidence you have given me. I now part with you with deep regret and bid you farewell with feelings of cordial friendship and with earnest wishes that you may have hereafter all the prosperity and happiness to be found in the world. After his final words drifted away, his staff slowly wandered off, alone, Johnston walked a few blocks from the railroad siding to Blandwood, the mansion of former North Carolina Governor John Motley Moorhead. It was there he hoped to bid farewell to some of his closest civilian friends. Letitia Moorhead Walker, Governor Moorhead's daughter, saw him approach. She met him on the front steps, tried to speak, but the words did not come. Neither could the now former Confederate general. He stood there perhaps thinking to the heady days of victory back in 1861 in July at first Manassas and now this defeat. Before her unable to say a word tears poured down his brown leathery cheeks. For the Confederate Army of Tennessee there was never a formal review. In his diary dated May the 3rd, 1865, South Carolina Sergeant Daniel Dansler simply wrote, We were lined up and stacked our guns in a field and left them there. Filled with a fantastic void, they all just drifted away. Each headed back to their homes, to loved ones, and to sprawling uncertainty. And now, a final note and observation. Johnston, like Lee at Appomattox, never forgot the generosity and humanity of the man in blue to whom he surrendered, so much so that he would not tolerate criticism of Sherman in his presence. After the war, the two corresponded regularly, and in fact, when Johnston was in Washington City, the two would meet for dinners when Sherman died on Valentine's Day in 1891, in tribute. Joe Johnston was asked to serve as an honorary pallbearer. On February the 19th, at the funeral procession on a blustery cold and rainy day in New York City, the former Confederate general kept his hat off as a sign of respect. Concerned for his health, someone asked him to please cover his head, And to that, Johnston replied, If I were in his place and he were standing here in mine, he would not put on his hat. As one might expect, Johnston soon caught cold, which developed into pneumonia, and he died in Washington on the 21st of March, 1891. He was 84. And finally, an observation. What of the site where the two met? The significant surrender that took place near Durham Station was swallowed by events at that time. The close of the war itself, the assassination of the 16th president and subsequent mourning, the tracking down of Booth, the subsequent trials and execution of many of his accomplices, and the immediate urgency of not only winning the war, but winning the peace reconstruction politics. Those all-consuming factors meant that Sherman and Johnston's gatherings at the humble Bennett Place slipped away and got lost in the fog of time. Indeed, far too many still believe that the American Civil War ended with Lee's surrender to Grant at Appomattox. No question, what took place in Wilmer McLean's front parlor was significant, For with the surrender of the Confederacy's most successful army, the capstone of the Confederate arch was punched out. But what must be remembered is that Lee surrendered only his army of Northern Virginia. At the Bennett Place, Joe Johnston surrendered Confederate troops in North and South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida. Just under 90,000 surrendered. Lee surrendered some 28,000 true there would be three more surrenders but none that matched the incredible number that laid down their arms as a result of the meetings at the Bennett place today it is an almost bucolic state historic site but given the magnitude and significance of what took place there perhaps someone someday will acknowledge that it is worthy of National Historic Park status. It deserves that recognition. For what took place there, at the Bennett Place, was monumental and is timeless. For it meant then and still means to this country, peace, reunification, and the beginning of the end for slavery. Next time we gather, the first of three episodes. Not so much a blow-by-blow account from the mighty clash that will serve as our topic, but timeless scenes and anecdotes from each day of the greatest battle in the history of the Western Hemisphere, Gettysburg. I hope you'll join me as we bring back-to-life stories from Wednesday. July 1st, 1863. This is Fred Kiger. Thank you for listening.